What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. Before we jump into an awesome episode with Mr. Ryan to talk about his experience in the Army and then through Special Forces and uh, the creation of the Guerrilla Group, uh, a couple quick updates. Today's episode is brought to you by Eberly Stock. Uh, I'm editing this episode a few days in advance of getting out for my deer hunt uh, this fall and uh, find that big old buck. And I feel extremely confident in my gear because, fun fact, I am a wuss in the cold. Uh, like, I kid you not, I look like the kid from A Christmas Story. Like, I bundle up, I look ridiculous, I can't get around, let alone be quiet. So, fortunately, though, uh, I picked up a Thunderbolt parka from Everly Stock this past week. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I feel extremely confident that as I'm sitting there glassing, trying to be quiet, blend in, do all the things that you're supposed to do while you're out hunting, not making any noise, staying warm, uh, I feel very confident that I will be able to do so in my Thunderbolt parka. So, give the retail store a call let them know the vanguard podcast sent you they'll get you all squared away for your late season hunt and uh, you won't get made fun of like uh, i'm hoping i won't uh this weekend so uh beyond that though a couple quick announcements thank you all for uh, the ratings and reviews if you haven't yet please take just a second to leave a little rating uh on uh, whatever platform you're listening to me on um it gets the word out there helps keep me in front of people and uh, honestly when i see those little numbers either go up or down kind of depending on whether or not you like me uh, makes me feel good and gives me a little bit more motivation. Uh, in addition to that, new designs uh, have continued to uh, hit the shop. Uh, Vanguard, VanguardStories.com. You know, my wife and I have been uh, kind of cranking out a couple designs here and there, and I would love to see you guys out there repping the show. Um, those proceeds are helping grow the show, right? Pro producing some more networking opportunities, travel, whatever the case may be, right? Uh, once we get to that point in the world, seems to be a little bit more uh, fun to get out. That's what I'm, I'm hoping to do. Um, but that being said, too, I like to interface with you all, and I use the Instagram probably more than I should. Um, but that's how I engage with you all. So, uh, please follow me. It's the Vanguard project with periods in between each word. And I would love to interact with you. I've got, you know, polls going giveaways every now and then I do weekly Instagram lives to answer questions and share some information, cover some gear, stuff like that, that you might hear from when I talk about it on the podcast or relate to people or these ads, whatever the case may be, but actually having a little bit more interaction with you guys, which is what I really enjoy. Otherwise, Otherwise, I'm going to stop talking because I think I've had a lot of coffee today and uh, we're going to get after it. So let's let, let's hit it. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you tuning in for the first time, uh, my name is Austin Jardine, and uh, this podcast focuses on telling people stories, understanding who they are, where they come from, uh, getting a little bit into their mind about how they made decisions, and, and tapping into some of the lessons learned that they've, you know, that they've experienced throughout time, and uh, hopefully giving you maybe some tools, experience, and, and different, I guess, tactics to leverage, uh, I guess, your experience in life with. Uh, maybe give you a couple different tools to uh, tackle whatever the next steps may be. So. With that being said, the super awkward intro out of the way that I probably should pre-record, but I haven't yet, uh, is Mr. Ryan. And uh, Ryan, I, I hit you up. I think we just crossed paths like yesterday. And I was like, dude, yeah. I was researching your, your gorilla group and looking at your guys' website. And you do stuff that I feel like um, my podcast does in a similar vein, but you're actually living it out. So maybe before we talk about Guerrilla Group, do you mind just talking about yourself, giving us an introduction of who you are, and you know, then we'll maybe lead into the Guerrilla Group a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I want to start off by saying thank you for having me on, man. Um, it's always nice to find other like-minded people and be able to share conversation with and, and learn from. Um, so I was born and raised in Florida. Um, I have one older brother. We grew up uh, what's known as the Space Coast. So it's right next to um, Cape Canaveral where the shuttle takes off. Nice. So grew up um, surfing a lot, played just about every type of sport. Um, when I was in like second grade, you know, the teachers were like, oh, he's got ADHD. I was just, you know, high strung all over the place. <laughs> so um, my parents didn't believe in, in medication for that kind of thing. So they just poured me into any and all the sports and outdoor things. So 
Um, grew up very active. <clears throat> um, graduated high school in 2005. Wasn't sure at all what I wanted to do. Um, did a semester of college, moved up to Tennessee. I was working just kind of like a dead-end job. Um, ended up getting to a really serious motorcycle accident at about 85 miles an hour. Shattered um, both arms. So I was laid up for about three months. Uh, and during that time, a lot of news articles were coming out about Iraq and <clears throat> everything going on over there. So I kind of saw an opportunity. I wanted to get out of the town I was, the situation I was. I just didn't feel like I was going anywhere. Um, so during that three-month recovery period, really piqued my interest about, you know, everything that was going on. Um, so I decided to join. I joined like right after I turned 19 and uh, went infantryman. Only was going to do four years. Um, and then it has blossomed into now over 15 years. Um, the last seven spent as a Green Bray with First Special Forces Group out of Washington. Um, and currently I'm going through the medical retirement process, uh, essentially getting retired before my 20 year mark due to medical reasons. So um, pretty stoked to have led a very successful and mostly fulfilling career in the army. Um, but I'm even more excited to get out and continue on this new journey that I kind of find myself on. That's awesome, man. So maybe a question to go back a little bit. So mm -hmm. you got in the accident and I know not from firsthand experience, but from hearing from several folks that when they get in accidents like that, it can be life-changing to a certain extent. Some people pick themselves up by the bootstraps and say, you know, fuck this, you know, I'm not going to let this define me. Some people have a really hard time getting out of it and then moving on. How are you able to, I guess, recover from um, shattering both arms to saying, I guess, getting into the army? Was that a, was that a limiting factor for you at all? Um, luckily when I joined in 2006, they were taking everybody. I mean, my medical and uh, morale waiver was super like thick. I had, you know, some previous run-ins with law enforcement and then uh, a couple serious uh, like speeding tickets or accidents and then that uh, wreck. And I kind of, during that three months, I just found myself missing a, a purpose or fulfillment or even just a calling to something. Um, I was really not doing shit with my life and it was because I simply didn't want to. So I needed a big um, jolt to kind of get me out of the situation I was in. Um, I don't know if I would define the bike wreck as a life altering moment. I think it, um, I needed to pursue my thrills in other ways. I had been riding street bikes for, I mean, ever since I was 16. So at that point it was only two years, but I was, I loved the, the thrill of it, you know, all the typical things. And I knew that um, I could never be happy doing a regular nine to five job or um, simply going to college and get my degree. Uh, my older brother went that route and I saw it and I just, I knew that wasn't for me. So I decided to give the army a shot. Um, I, wanted to see if it was something I could do or I could even excel at. And, um, you know, I wanted the experience of moving somewhere new, getting to experience, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. I just, I felt like I needed to prove some stuff to myself. Um, so I made the decision. Okay. So when you joined the army, I mean, first of all, why, why did you choose the army specifically? And then did you have an end role in mind that you wanted to get to? So when I originally joined, it was because I was reading these articles about a company back then that was called Blackwater. I'm sure everybody knows mm -hmm. about. Um, and at that time frame, 2005, um, you know, they were doing some pretty serious work and they just, man, that seemed like a badass job. So I <laughs> was researching feet. into, yeah, I was researching into Blackwater and then come to find out back then, I think one of the requirements was they wanted you to have a minimum of four years in um, the infantry, whether that was Marines or Army. Um, that was like basic level requirements. So I was like, well, shit. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. They're not going to take me, some kid off the street. So 
that was my initial really push. I was like, well, I'm going to have to go into the army, do four years. You know, at the time I was like, man, the army is going to be full of a bunch of just squares, just a bunch of by the book. I'm, I'm not going to get along with anybody, but I'll suffer through four years just so I can get out and go blackwater and make big money and be cool. Um, and that was the plan. Just wanted to do four years, get out and go contract. Um, did a 15 month deployment to Iraq in 2007 and then did a 12 month deployment to Afghanistan in 2010. During that Afghanistan trip is when I re-enlisted. Um, that was a particularly shitty trip and I just, I unfinished or whatever you want to call it. I just wasn't ready to, to get out or contract. So uh, re-enlisted and decided to stay in. Okay. So when you re-enlisted, I mean, you said it was a pretty shitty experience. Was there a particular reason that you're comfortable talking about? And I'm asking in case somebody else is in that similar situation, right? And they're like, listen, I'm, I'm, you know, knowing that the current state of the world is maybe, or is a lot different than it was back then. Right. But is maybe like, Hey, shitty situation. Don't really know where I want to go. Don't really know what I want to do. I mean, what led you to re-enlist? Um, honestly, it was, it was a personal issue as to why I re-enlisted right before that trip. I found out that I had a daughter that was little less than one. That was mine. Um, and between my Iraq and Afghanistan trip, tried to, you know, make things work. The mom didn't work out, ended up taking her to court, getting full custody of my eight-month-old daughter you know I'm an E4 in the army I have no idea I'm, I was 22 years old I had no idea how to take care of a kid I couldn't even take care of myself um, but I knew what the right thing was and the right thing was for me to have um, her full-time in my care and then I had already committed to going to this Afghanistan trip so she lived with my parents while I was gone and I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out um, and now I have somebody else that's depending on me to feed them and take care of them. So um, I needed stability in order to figure out on how to be a dad. So um, that's why I re-enlisted. When I re-enlisted, I had five options. Hawaii was one of those. Um, and I knew Hawaii, the units out there had a reputation for being very chill, not deploying a lot. So I knew that trip being especially rough, I was like, I need to I need a break. I'm burnt out. Let me go out to Hawaii. I'm going to get paid to live in Hawaii. Um, I no big deal. Go back. Right. Yeah. It <laughs> seems, seems like all the cards were falling into place. I got married shortly after returning home from that trip. We PCS to Hawaii. Um, I get out there, get assigned to the recce platoon and make some great friends. And, um, you know, that's why I started seeing some of the residual effects from the previous two deployments, um, you know, things were getting a little, um, a little rough, but, you know, performance at work was excelling. I was knocking out incredibly difficult schools. I was getting promoted. So um, about a year into Hawaii, I realized that I was like, well, I've had enough of a break. I'm hungry again. I want to see, um, I realized a lot about myself in that process. So I was like, well, I'm going to try out for selection. This regular army, the infantry shit, it's just, it's been fun, but it's just not satisfying anymore. So before I get out, let me see if I can uh, be a green break. So okay. um, 2013, me and a buddy of mine from that unit in Hawaii went to selection and got selected. That's awesome. So when you were going through that process of kind of, I guess, more or less evaluating where you were at, realizing that you were hungry again and, and understanding, and maybe even going back further to understanding that that was the best decision to, to bring your daughter with you. Right. Mm -hmm. um, was there anything that you learned throughout those process, whether that's like identifying, Hey, I know this is what's best for my daughter or Hey, sitting down and reflecting on where I'm currently at to move forward. Is there anything that you learned that you feel like people should key into and maybe leverage if they're in a similar situation? Um, I think really the most impactful decision I made during that time was to get sole custody of my daughter. That was by far not an easy decision to make. You know, I 
selfishly, I was 22 years old. I was an E4 in the military, active duty, you know, knew I had deployment coming up, but um, I really have to just credit my parents. Um, the option of not getting custody of her and not having her live with me was never a feasible option. It was, sure. I've gotten taught since I could remember, you know, you have to own up to your responsibilities. Um, and that child was my responsibility. And for better, for worse, her biological mom was not taking care of her. So I was forced to step up into this role. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, didn't know how I was going to juggle being a full-time active duty soldier and having an eight month old daughter with, you know, I had to find babysitters. I had to find, I had to move to a different place. That was a better environment for her. It was just, it was a lot of uncomfortable decisions I had to make, but I didn't feel like I had any other choice. Um, and that mindset has really pushed me through a lot of different things, just not giving myself any other options. Like there is no option of, Oh, if I fail this school, if I fail this selection, then I can just go back. Like, no, that's not an option because the moment you start giving yourself options and shit gets really fucking bad, you're going to pick the least painful the easier option. option. Right. So, okay. um, yeah, that's, that's really what my mindset was through that whole process was, you know, I don't have any other option. I have to take custody of this child. I don't have any other option. I have to stay in because I have to provide some stability for this child. And, um, you know, when I decided I want to go to selection, there was no, I was the battalion sniper section leader for, you know, a light infantry unit in Hawaii. Um, Arslick and sniper had all the right schools and positions, um, but at the time they all felt like they came pretty easy. And I started to realize that I had been holding myself back. So um, I just kind of went all in on it. Uh, that was the decision to go to selection and not go into it thinking, well, man, I have a cush ass job if I fail, you know, so it's no sweat. Like, no, I put all of my eggs in that basket for better, for worse. Uh, and it worked out for me. Okay. So you went in, made it through. Um, and what did you do? Uh, so you were a green beret. So I've, I've interacted a little bit with a few other green berets, but I still don't feel like I fully understand what you guys do. Do you mind? I mean, to the extent a, that you can and are comfortable with what, what do green berets, what are the, what function do you guys perform? So our principal function is an unconventional warfare subject matter expert that the army has. Um, when it comes to soft, there is typically different soft units or special specialists in certain different things, you know, like range of battalion, there are specialty is direct action, air for, uh, airfield seizure type shit. Green Berets, before the GWAT, you know, we were out building partner forces, making contacts, training up um, indigenous armies, doing things like this, but with GWAT kicked off, everybody got in that DA train. Everybody wanted to be door kickers. So, um, you know, I, I didn't enter a regiment until 2013, but before that, that's what everybody knew Green Berets were. They were door kickers. Um, that was the capacity they were filling. And that's something I wanted to do. So that's what I thought being SF was. Um, got through the Q course made it to a team, uh, I was 18 Bravo, so it's a weapon sergeant. 18 Bravos, their responsibility are, is training the rest of the team up on weapons and proficiency with issued weapons, training them up and getting them proficient on foreign weapons. You know, the shit that we would normally have to um, help our partner force with, with training or maintenance or anything like that. And then also um, other foreign weapons in case battlefield recovery, shit like that. So um, I, Coming from an infantry background, that was the job I wanted. I was familiar with a lot of it. And then already being um, sniper qualified, it just, it, it seemed like the right fit for me. So uh, that was the job I wanted. And that was the job I ended up getting. Okay. So when you end up going in through the selection process, do you have your, I guess, is it like a run of the mill? You get to choose where you end up? Or, I mean, I'm asking, so if there's a kid out there that's contemplating yeah. selection. So when I went through in selection, you could do a wish list, and it was, you know, 
you listed your top five duty stations in order of precedence because there's only five groups, um, active duty groups. So I, being a Florida boy, was like, dude, I'm going to seventh group. That's my number one. <laughs> my last was first group in Washington because I grew up in the <laughs> Southeast. I had only been stationed in the Southeast besides Hawaii. So, uh, and my family was here. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to go seventh group. Those dudes stood out in Florida. They seemed cool. I'd be closer to family. Um, so throughout the entire Q course, they kind of, they're updating the roster based on people that are failing or recycling or whatever. So after each phase, they're like, hey, yeah, we still got you slotted for this group in this language. Um, prior to going to selection, I already took six months of Dari, uh, which is a dialect of Persian Farsi that uh, they speak like Northern Afghanistan. Um, that's the, that's the main language. So already spoke a different language going through the Q course. And when I went through language at the very end, the entire time they're like, yeah, we got you for seventh year and you're going to test out in Dari. Get to language at the very end, literally the last thing after Robin Sage, just six months of language. And they called me off for Chinese um, and first group. And I was like, no, no, that's not, that's not how it's supposed to be. Like I, I, I picked seventh group first was my last and I uh, tried to fight it for a couple of weeks and it came down to, Hey, this is what the regiment needs. There's a shortage of 18 Bravos that can speak Chinese Mandarin. Your D lab score is high enough. You qualify for Mandarin. Nice. They need you. They need uh, more 18 Bravos to speak Mandarin. So take it or leave it. Essentially, take Chinese or you can quit the key course. And I'm like, bro, I can, I can smell my green braid, you know, at this point. Yeah. You're so, like, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I bit the bullet, moved to Washington and quickly fell in love with it. Um, everything about it. Um, not just, you know, obviously working as a green braid in first group is very different than being in the infantry. So that in of itself was great. And it was everything I expected it to be. Um, what I thought being a Green Bay was, it was. Um, and then I quickly fell in love with just the area of the Pacific Northwest. So I was extremely happy up there for about um, six years. That's cool. I got a degree in, in Mandarin as, as well. So oh, no shit. Yeah, I took two years of language in college. So I have a minor in it and then two years of language and studies and all sorts of other stuff. So I don't yeah. use it anymore. I mean, I used to be conversational so i work in like an international company so i actually work with folks in asia so every now and then i would like harass like try to yeah. pick, pick it up but i it's been so long but that's cool it's dude it's a struggle man and you know every year a green break so every year a green Bay has to recall in their language um that sucks. i'm not sure what the standard is right now i think it's one plus one plus is a minimum but so Every year I have to relearn Chinese because for the other 11 months, I'm never using Chinese. Maybe if we do a JSET to Southeast Asia, there's Chinese shopkeepers or restaurant owners everywhere. And, you know, we'd be out with the boys slamming beers and try to bullshit in Chinese, you know, but other than that, I never used it. Um, so it was extremely difficult to um, be very proficient at it. There's some guys, there's some green braids that are very, very intelligent and they're speaking at like a three, three level. Chinese Mandarin and they're a white dude you know so it's there's some it's dudes that have, yeah they absolutely crush it and I'm not one of those dudes I just you know so yeah yeah so do you get to pick the language like you said you came in with Farsi or a dialect um, of Farsi yeah so you can request the language you can make all these requests and gen generally they try to fulfill the request because you know if a person gets a job or language or duty station of their choosing, they're going to be a lot happier. So sure. they, they do try to um, give everybody what they want, but there's probably around 10, 15% that are forced to uh, a different group or a different language. Usually most people get the MLS of their choice unless um, they're incredibly short on medics or some specific MLS and they'll push more people that way. But sure. Um, yeah, so it was a blessing in disguise, got me out of the southeast. Um and Washington was was very good to me. Yeah, yeah. So Washington State. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I'm actually in Boise, so not too okay. terribly far. Yeah. Um, I don't drove past it a couple of times, but never never got to check it's it. It's easy. Out. Relatively speaking, it is it is tiny. 
I mean, compared to the Seattle's and Portland's, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not big. Um, But all right, man. So moving uh, before, I guess we move out of the, your time in as a green beret, is there anything that you've learned that people either currently, you know, currently enlisted, maybe wanting to go green beret special forces that you feel like, Hey, I don't really share this a whole lot. People don't know this common misconception, something like that, that you think somebody might benefit from? Yeah, I, it's a lot different now because there's people, I mean, there's active duty green brace that are on social media that these that younger people can message directly and ask for advice. There's a fuck ton of programs. There's all the tools are at people's disposal. I know when I was getting ready to go to selection, there was none of that. I had to like find books. I'm like reading all these books and doing all these things to try and um, get whatever advantage I can. But I think a lot of people nowadays, they hype themselves out of going to selection because of self-doubt. And part of the reason why I started sharing work shit on my social media was to try and, um, break that stigma that, you know, Green Berets, I had the same vision of Green Berets when I was infantry. Like, oh, they're all fucking six foot two, 220 pounds, just, you know, that's just not true. Um, Selection was easier than I thought it was going to be physically. Um, And the physical aspects aren't what get a lot of people. Sure, the people that get dropped for um, failing to meet times, but a majority, you know, either injuries or it's something that it's not physical either it's the personality or it's their peers how other people uh rate them or it's something that the cadre sees some uh character trait that they just they don't think would be uh good for the regiment so a lot of the reasons why people don't get selected is because of personal so i think people um overhype the physical portions of it it is difficult team week will break you off doesn't matter what kind of shape you're in but i've seen physically weak people make it through selection because they have fucking heart Um, they're a team player and they're a good dude so i i try to get people to just go because it doesn't matter what the outcome is you're going to be better if you just try it and you may go through selection and be like, dude, this isn't for me. And well, at least now, you know, so you can confidently make a decision to do something else, or you go through, you don't get selected because of something. Maybe, um, you know, you can improve on your physical abilities. Maybe you just need some more time in the army to get those leadership skills. So you can exhibit leadership, uh, skills during team week, whatever it may be, but you're still going to learn those things even if you don't get selected. So you can either go back better prepared or you can, you know, do whatever you feel is right. But I, if more people just went and stopped hyping themselves out of it, I think they would be surprised. Okay. Okay. How did you, I guess, not hype yourself out of it? I mean, how did you develop, I guess, the sense of awareness and heart to get through? Did you ever feel like giving up? Uh, oh yeah. I mean, there's plenty of times I felt like giving up, but I just, I, I didn't have that option. I didn't, I wanted that so bad that consumed every aspect of my life for better or for worse. I was always studying books or, um, you know, rucking, or I had a great SF recruiter out in Hawaii. He was a fifth group echo and, uh, he was a fucking physical specimen. He broke us off for like months prior to going to selection. At that time in Hawaii, that crew of dudes that were SF recruiters, their pass rate at selection was insane. Like they wouldn't just let somebody sign up and go to selection a week later. Like you had to go through months of physical training with them. There was team week events they would do on the beach or in Waimea Bay. Um, So they not only did a good job of preparing us physically, but also mentally. So I think that, really built a lot of confidence in myself, um, trusting the people out there that are putting us through the program and just seeing how I was performing against the rest of the guys that were there. Um, I felt good about myself and I, I knew it wasn't a life or death thing, right? If I didn't pass, it wasn't the end of the world. 
the worst thing that could happen would be I'd be right back in the same spot I was, which was fine, but it's not what I wanted for myself. So um, I tried to take a lot of pressure off of myself and just go in with no expectations. I at least wanted to be able to say that I attempted selection. Um, and then if it didn't work out, I could get out and at least feel good that I, I gave it a shot. Yeah. Um, so that's what it was. And I went there with my buddy. I ended up meeting some solid ass dudes like the first day or two that we all bumped next to each other. So it was, it was fun. You know, I was meeting new dudes. We were bull, bullshitting all the time. Um, it was just a suck fest. And my six years in the infantry prior to that point had prepared me to just fucking suck. So um, <laughs> just got through it, you know? Okay. That's awesome, yeah. man. Well, now, if we don't mind, I don't know if there's anything else you want to cover before you step into the gorilla group and what you guys are doing. No, um, I would say probably the biggest crossing point returning from that 2010, 2011 deployment to Afghanistan. Uh, I was with the hundred first at that time, lost four of my friends in, in our platoon. Um, and it was, you know, in your face, it was, that was those were probably some of the more serious gunfights I've ever been in SF time included, just because, you know, back then in the infantry, you didn't have stacks of aircraft above you as you're going out. You didn't have, you know, really QRF. So it was just a lot different. Um, but I got back from that deployment and it was drinking a lot, just really coming apart a little bit. And I met a good group of dudes out there that had been through a lot of similar experiences and um, we would always go out either surfing or spear fishing or regular fishing or whatever. Every weekend was a big community type thing. There was, you know, four or five of us with all of our wives and kids. And we would, it was never a question of if we were doing something, it was just where, whose house we going to. So that really tight community allowed me to kind of, you know, talk about invent about things to my buddies who I know have been through similar things in their previous background. So I felt safe in talking about it, but it was the going outside, experiencing new things, like learning how to spearfish or um, any of those things, just reconnecting with doing things outside, doing things besides just going to the bars and being around a new group of friends that I could learn from and that shared similar experiences. That was that did a lot for me at that time frame, And I think that's what recharged my batteries and then um, paired with some successful um, schools kind of gave me the momentum to be like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to try selection out and I'm going to, I'm going to try this route. Um, yeah. I felt, I felt really good coming out of that. So um, go to selection, you know, all those things go through a couple of deployments. And then my last deployment, we got back from Afghanistan February 2020. Um, I had to come home early because my oldest daughter was uh, going through a lot of shit. So I needed to come home early. That trip, we lost our friend and senior echo on the team, Dustin, um, one month into the trip. So it was a tough trip and it was especially more difficult because the political climate at that time was just it was all gas and then all brakes. You know, we, they would try to shove us out the door as many operations as we could get in. And then they would cut off all operations and say, Hey, nobody's going out for, because of some like, you know, peace deal or whatever. So it was just very stop and go. Um, we had a lot of downtime and all the things that I thought I worked through from the 2010 trip kind of started resurfacing months after Dustin was killed. Um, and it just really started to go downhill really fast. So when I got back from that deployment and I'm looking around, I'm like, dude, my life's a fucking wreck. Um, I need to do something. So I start figuring out like, hey, you've been through this before. What, you know, got you through it? And then that's what kind of clicked. It was like, oh, I need to, I got to stop feeling sorry for myself. I got to stop sitting inside and just drinking all the time or just watching Netflix. Like I need to get outside and I need to surround myself with good people. So that's what I did. I found a couple guys that lived in my area, um, learned how to longboard skateboard, uh, did some winter surfing up there, rock climbing. I just, 
I started to pour myself into outdoor physical activities and then around a group of dudes that had all the attributes that I wanted for myself. They were entrepreneurs. They were just good fucking people that were out uh, enjoying their life. So I was very fortunate to find that very quickly. Um, but I knew there was something to this. So there's, there's some formula here that's on the wall that I'm trying to put together. So I need to share this because if it's helped me tremendously, like literally turn my life around uh, or help turn my life around, then maybe you can provide that for somebody else. So COVID hits uh, a month after you get back from that deployment. And I'm like, well, I guess with all this fucking time, it's time to get this thing started. So, um, you know, a buddy helped come up with the name and then we just launched it. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. It was a bored COVID time thing, experiment um, that I just wanted to roll with. So Gorilla Group was started. Um, we had a couple surf trips up in Washington um, and then did a trip in Moab. And then I left Washington, moved to Bragg. But it's been a living experiment over the last year of just figuring out how to present to people to get them to come out of their shell, right? There's something uh, powerful and healing when you're surrounded with good people and you're out doing fun things that make you feel alive, you know, like rock climbing or surfing or just anything outside. Um, so I'm just trying to find a way to, get more people to experience that in this age of social media. Everyone says that they're connected because you can follow people's lives. You can send them messages, but that's an artificial form of connection that I think is slowly poisoning us. Um, somebody coined the phrase analog interaction, that face-to-face -face shit. Um, there's just something powerful to that. So trying to get people to redevelop the sense of community, whether you're a veteran or not, whether you enjoy outdoor adventures or not it's just about meeting new people because you can learn something from anybody um so we do that we raise funds through you know the merchandise we sell on our website um that money goes into hosting events we try to spread them out across the country as we continue to grow um like to do events like we did one in moab um we had somebody familiar with the area so checked out you know all the arches did some sick hikes some waterfalls um, and just brought a bunch of people together that just wanted to experience something new. Um, and then it's just kind of taken off from there. That's awesome. So you guys trying to do stuff every weekend or is it kind of a, a schedule based? Right now it's a schedule based thing. I've been very limited because I'm still technically in the army. Um, I have somebody, uh, Ashley, she helps me run gorilla group as well as uh, my buddy, Chris, and, you know, they're pitching in tons of hours for free just because they believe in it as much as I do. Um, so right now our schedule is really limited to our actual work schedule. Um, but once I'm out, that will give me a lot of freedom to, we like to do more events and, um, you know, continue to grow this. We're looking at adding uh, regional reps. We have one now in Florida, um, looking at another one in Texas, but we would like to have these regional reps to where if somebody's in like, Oh, I live in Georgia, the rep down in Florida is doing an event in Tampa. You know, they have somebody essentially closer located to where they're at. Um, but I really would love for it to be a de decentralized process to where it's a community thing that yeah. the community builds and grows. So um, I'm trying to be patient and allow the growth to happen organically. Um, cause I think that's how you find the right people and the right people is what it takes, you know, yeah. to have something that's real. Um, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of nonprofits, uh, especially, and then there's also companies that every, it's very cool to help veterans. Um, but I, I think there's still a big gap when it comes to how to successfully help veterans. Um, there's a lot of weekend retreats. There's a lot of this, that, and the others that I feel are, they're, they're great causes and I have no idea that people genuinely want to help, but I think a weekend retreat is only a band-aid 
And I think people need that interaction with the community and they need something outdoors and a new way of life, a new purpose, a new passion, whatever that is, um, to really enact changes in somebody's life. I don't think you get that trying to be stuck in the same spot that you were in. Yeah. So is the gorilla group, uh, is it still kind of targeting not just veterans, but just the community in general, bringing people in? Yeah. So that was a hard decision early on um, when it came to starting the company and growing it. I knew I had already had a, a platform on social media, my personal social media because of sharing work-related stuff. So I knew the easy button would be to start a clothing company with some cool designs and um, do the whole, that whole route of, you know, the cool guy clothing company shit. And I'm not talking shit because some of my closest friends own companies like those, but I just wanted something different. I saw the glorification that was happening of putting green braids and seals on pedestals. And I, and I knew it was going to be fucking dangerous. So I didn't want to start something that was just to glorify cool guys. I didn't want to start something that was, um, inclusive, like, oh, you had to be a soft guy to be a part of, or you even had to be a veteran to be part of. Because one of my biggest things I started realizing my time in Washington is I was learning phenomenal things from people that were civilians. They had never been in the military. They had, you know, that world was foreign to them. But when I got out of the box, I put myself in and allowed myself to just try to understand someone else's point of view or, you know, their purpose or passion. Um, I started to learn a lot. So I was like, man, we active duty vets, whatever. We have a ton to learn from civilians that didn't spend the last 15 years growing up in GWAT. They have a completely different perspective and journey that we could learn from. So that was another gap that guerrilla group were trying to um, fill in, which is this, this, this weird divide between um, military and civilian, you know, just basic communication. It's just lost. So um, yeah. So from the beginning, been pushing hard to kind of distance this away from a military thing or a cool guy thing. Um, You know, we have guys that love shooting and that's something they're passionate about. That's just not something that, I'm putting a lot of emphasis on highlighting because I don't want people to feel that they have to be, they have to come from a certain job background or they have to be a certain way to connect and be a part of this. Um, So conscious decision, Hey, trying to um, market and appeal just as much to the civilians as I am regular um, active duty guys or veterans or whatever. So it's been a learning process because I don't know how to think like a civilian. And that's where Ashley has come in to fucking save the day multiple times. <laughs> she was, she's never been in the military. Um, she has family. It was, she has a lot of close ties and she does some therapy work with veterans. So she's very passionate about it. However, her being a civilian um, brings a whole new set of eyes to what we're trying to do rather than just rely on me the only thing I know is the military for the last 15 years. Okay. So, um, yeah. So when it comes to uh, bringing folks in and, and having these events, is there like an application type process? And I'm asking like, so if people want to come in, they hear this and they're like, hell yeah, I want to go get involved tomorrow. There's an event down the road. Can they just show up and, and be a part of the group yeah. or is there? Yeah. So um, we'll post events. If you go to our website, you'll be able to sign up for the newsletter and or see the calendar of events on there right now. Um, We try to project bigger events that, you know, either myself or Ashley will be at. Um, We'll post about those on social media and on the website um, weeks, if not months ahead of time, so people can make travel arrangements or whatever. Um, But there's there's no application, there's no um, nothing. You just show up, we make all the details very public and, it's it's a fun experience seeing like who shows up, getting to meet people. And it's just, um, it's still uncomfortable for me. It's still a very awkward <laughs> thing. Like as an adult to make friends, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, you know? it is. It is. And, and on top of that, now I'm having to do it sober, um, 
you know, I, I stopped drinking a little <laughs> while ago. So I, I, get I don't that. remember yeah. the last dude. Yeah. I don't remember the last social setting I was in that I wasn't drinking. So when I stopped drinking and then started doing these events, I was like, man, this is extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> like, uh, like, don't, don't talk to me. <laughs> Walk away. Yeah. I, yeah. I just, uh, you know, people were like, dude, you just look like you're upset. I'm like, Oh no, I'm good, man. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. You know? So yeah. I sympathize with that. Yeah. It's, it's man, this whole thing has been, I think I'm obviously the one getting the most growth out of it because, um, it's just taught me so much along the way. And looking back to a year and a half ago when I started Grill Group, I would have never imagined it was going to be what it is today. Yeah. Um, and I'm just really grateful for the people that have come in and helped along the way, people that have come on board and just the opportunities it's brought me um, to meet up with some really great, great fucking people and um, just to expand my creative juices on what's possible. For sure. All right, man. I think my last question is uh, if people want to start helping out, you know, you were mentioning growing at some point, having regional folks, are you doing that now? Are you taking donations, just merch? How can people get involved and help? Uh, so right now the best way they can help if they only want to help out monetarily would just be buying something on the website. Um, you know, people ask about it where, when you wear or whatever, just point them to the Instagram um, or the website. Um, but monetary donations are great or people, you know, buying stuff is, is awesome because it allows us to fund things. But what means the most is people get involved and they come out and do these things. Um, so keep an eye out for events coming up or how we find or develop regional reps is we don't necessarily look for a, a geographic location. It's just somebody that comes into our life through Gorilla Group, through um, and I'm buying stuff, posting pictures, or interacting with us on social media. As we get to know these people, we're like, oh, this dude or this chick, I see the same things in them. I see the ability to put themselves in uncomfortable situations, to want to help people, to uh, live a life that's outside and full of adventure and not just, you know, bar hopping or whatever. So, um, all that happens organically. So if there's people out there that they're already doing this type of shit, like, Oh, um, like somebody that is huge into snowmobiling, let's say, and they're like, Oh, I got, you know, my buddy's got a couple extra skis and you can take people out, show them, you know, whoever's in the area. Um, that's really the most valuable thing for us is the human domain. It is the trickiest to grow and, stay connected to, but that is the most valuable, um, commodity for us. So I hope when I'm finally out in a couple months, like I'm just going to be going ape shit with events and trying to, it's going to feel so weird to be able to like, Oh my God, I'm a 34 year old adult. Like I can drive to another state without having to ask another adult. I'm allowed to, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be wild. So, um, I don't know. I, I may just be traveling around for a while and, you know, trying to get into all the cool shit that I can. Um, learning the shit like, you know, rock climbing or getting back into surfing or learning skateboarding. It's um, those things in of itself are incredibly fun and fulfilling for me. But the people I've met along the way, even from random like 16 year olds in a, you know, parking lot that it showed me some trips, some tricks that helped me out massively with longboarding. Um, the people I've met along the way, the situations I've found myself in has been the funnest part of this journey. So if nothing else, I'm going to continue to do it because I, I just love meeting new people that make me, um, that challenge my perspective. Yeah. So I love that. That's what I feel like I get most out of this podcast It is yeah. being challenge to a certain extent but also like having to have those awkward conversations and hard conversations because at the end of it i get to sit down like with my wife and be like you wouldn't believe what i fucking learned today <laughs> and it's just Dude, you know I, I get that i've i've come to realize that vulnerability is the biggest gatekeeper between your yourself and whatever you want for yourself um you know my times of being vulnerable have led to the 
biggest spurts of either growth or connection. Like there's been a couple times on social media where I'll post something or fire something off. That's incredibly personal. Yep. And I'll fucking, I'll like, you know, hit send and be like, Oh, and like I'll like shut my phone off for a couple hours. So I'm yep. like, dude, yep. I don't want to, I don't want to know the feedback, blah, blah, blah. But every single time I felt that way, when I've come back, there's been floods of messages from people that are like, dude, I, I felt like this same way. And I thought I was the only person. Um, so really just being more vocal about the shit that we all go through that we don't think anybody else goes through, um, makes people feel less alone. And through that vulnerability, man, it's opened some great fucking doors for me. So I try to encourage other people to become more vulnerable and kind of put themselves out there. And I think the results are going to be a lot less scary than people, people think just yeah. circling back, just like selection. Um, you know, people will talk themselves out of it or let their ego get in the way. And it's really holding them back. So hopefully through the gorilla group and the people we meet along the way, we can just slowly turn the tide on that and make it more of a normal thing. Okay. I love it. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, that's good, man. That's this again. This is another, um, you know, attribute, not attribute, but this is another positive to doing stuff like this. You know, meet other great people. Um, Bree was the one that um, connected you and I. You know, and I know she's got her hand in um, some things up there. Yep. So love to see it, man. Yeah, yeah. The vulnerability piece is it's a tough one, right? I, I've learned learning because i don't think i'll ever be i will never be perfect at it but i've learned over the mm -hmm. past probably three years kind of what true vulnerability is and what it feels like and knowing when it's like okay i feel like i do need to say this but i'm not comfortable doing it but i know that if i if i don't then i'm going to be more frustrated than if i hadn't said it if that made sense yeah yeah and it's it's very hard us especially as men we've been programmed since birth that is <clears throat> what a man is, right? You don't show your, your emotions, you remain stoic. Um, and I think there's a lot of great things that can be uh, used from stoicism, but I think people, some people may not understand the point of stoicism is not to not feel emotions. It's to observe them and control your emotions and how you react to them. Yep. So, um, I'm trying, I'm probably doing a terrible job at it, but I'm trying to show dudes that I, as an active duty Green Beret, I can, I can have my things I need to work through. I can express myself. I can be vulnerable and I can still suit up and boot up and do this um, hard ass job. Like admitting you're feeling emotions or knowing when to take a knee and be like, yo, I'm, I'm fucking off center. I need to get myself recentered. That's, masculinity and somehow we've gotten it backwards and fucked up um you know for our entire adult lives so trying man um yeah. at this point all, all i can do is i go through a lot of experiences and i subject myself to a lot of different things because i want i want answers and even if i may not find my answer out of something i try to share about it so somebody else will um, right you know, I've really tried to push dudes to go to a therapist and man, when dudes finally go to a therapist and they find the right one and it clicks, like I love seeing that light bulb turn on when they were like, dude, I was holding myself back from this. You know, even something as simple as therapy can do so much. So that's going to be my, my, another question for you is, is when you've started to subject yourself to these feelings and kind of the art of stoicism, right? Looking at it a little bit more objectively. How did you get to that point of knowing how to separate emotion from thought? Cause they are different. Right. And then being mm -hmm. able to kind of sit with it comfortably and, and understand that. How did you get there? Uh, I mean, I, definitely not, not there. It's like you said earlier, it was always a continual process to get better at. Um, I think the breakthrough was, um, October of last year, super drunk, um, going through some shit and was at my house by myself. Um, basically tried to kill myself in my living room. Um, that woke me up. I, I 
posted something about it after the fact and everybody and their mom got involved back to my group commander, which is good. I understand everybody had the right intentions, but it, it highlighted what I was struggling through and it forced me to face it head on. So enrolled in like 30 days of intensive outpatient alcohol and substance abuse uh, program, followed that with a 30 day intensive outpatient program for trauma therapy. I just, I signed myself up for and volunteered for shit that was way outside of my comfort zone because I had no other choice. It, my shit was, it was, it was just really bad. And it got to a point where I just didn't want to be here anymore. And I was like, man, something's got to change, right? So the only thing I can do is do a complete drastic change, which is sign up for all this shit that holds me accountable for my issues with drinking, for my issues with how I've dealt with trauma and PTSD related shit, you know, for the last decade. Um, and in doing so, <clears throat> became more comfortable with talking about things. And the more I talked about things and through my therapist and EMDR and stuff like that, I just slowly started cracking open that egg um, and it's gotten easier and easier the further I've gotten down. But it is very difficult to get to the point to realize when your emotions are causing you to react in a negative way. Um, and the, what really put the icing on the cake for me was um, when I just started not to take anything personal. Um, if anybody has heard the book, The Four Agreements, I'm sure a lot of people have, but one of the agreements in there is to not take anything personal. Um, so now what I've really been trying to work on is when I feel myself getting upset or I observe my emotions or somebody says or does something that strikes a nerve, I really try to delay myself from responding if I even respond at all. Mm -hmm. And I just process it and be like, why does this make you feel the way it is? Because whatever they said or did nine times out of 10, isn't what's causing you to feel that way. There's some other in, you know, inner wound that is causing you to, to react that way. Um, and I was extremely bad about it in the past. I would, everything was fight or flight, man. My, my needle was, it was pegged. Uh, it was always on fight or flight. Um, I went through two rounds of the gangrene block injection, which was specifically to try to help your body regulate that and found no success, but I did find a lot of success in EMDR, um, working with my psychiatrist and getting on the right medications, mm -hmm. um, and just taking a lot of accountability, um, uh, because everything that I say or do or feel is 100% on me, no matter what somebody else does or says, I can only give them power if I, if I give it to them. So if I feel hurt or, um, angry or whatever, I'm giving that person power over me. And I like to be in control. So I like to be in control of my feelings. So um, once I'm able to realize that and I breathing techniques and meditation, like clear that shit out, I'm able to think clear and be like, you know what? This probably isn't because of what I did or didn't do. This is probably something that they're dealing with, that they're taking all of their shit out on me so i'm trying to be understanding and just be like you know what yeah it's something they need to work through and just not take it personally i think yeah. once people work on not taking anything personally a lot of shit changes um and you take some control back of your life dude that's that is super powerful uh, as far as like and i and i'm speaking from personal experience as far as like not giving either the other person or the initial response like emotional response power. Cause like, so in previous episodes, like, so my, I have OCD, right? Like I've seen a, a counselor or a therapist off and on for 13 or 14 years, something like that. And until the past like three years, it like dictated fucking everything. Right. And so my wife and I have done a couple episodes kind of talking about what it looked like and how I've handled it and how we've kind of recovered. And we actually need to record another episode on how we've baked it into our relationship as managing it. But that's one thing that I've learned is for me with my OCD, cause it's all like the emotional response to stuff, right? Like I have to do it because I'm scared something bad's going to happen. But if I continue to sit and say something bad will happen, regardless of whether or not it's true, then it gets worse and worse and worse. But if I just say, 
okay, fuck it, whatever, it's fine, you know, and kind of like sit with it for a second, it goes away. But that was such a, a learned thing, right? It's one of those things that you can't just say, okay, yeah, okay, I get how to do it. It's like, you have to live through it for months and months and train on how it actually looks like and what it means like in practice. So, yeah. Yeah. I, my oldest daughter has OCD and it's, I, it took me a long time to really wrap my head around it and how to help her deal with it. You know, cause I, at first I was like, man, just, just don't do it. Like you're not going to freak out. Like you're fine. You know what I mean? She's like, yeah. no, I have to, like, I have to, uh, you know, fix that or whatever. I'm like, dude, it's like, just fucking leave it. I, it was just, I was emotionally immature didn't understand that this is something that we can work with, you know, like you said that you and your wife have kind of started to figure it out and, you know, implement it into your guys' relationship. Um, it's yeah. I mean, my hat's off to you because a lot of people I think will just become their diagnosis. Like, Oh, I, I have OCD and that's just, it is what it is. You know, like I, it's just who I am. Um, and I, and I hate that attitude. So I, lo- I love seeing that you're like, you know what? This is something that we can work with. This is something that we can adjust our lives to. Um, that's yeah. huge, man. That's that's pretty fucking rare. <laughs> yeah, I, I give a lot of credit to her because it was not fun. I, I did not yeah. enjoy the process of it. I mean, it was probably the worst. I think it took... And it, it's funny because like it, I'll say it took eight months from what we've talked about for us to figure it out. But it was eight months, 24 seven of like shit, just not going right at all. Mm-hmm. Like whether it was like washing my hands, doing laundry, locking doors. And these are all things that I've done over the past to like wicked obsessive thoughts where like I had a hard time like differentiating what was what was real versus what wasn't at one point. So it was like we were always arguing about just shit. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean, honestly, it would have been easier for her to have been like, you're fucking crazy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, I, I'm glad because like, I, I feel, and it sounds super fruity when I say it like this, but like having gone through that, I feel more comfortable having conversations like this with you. Right. And having some of the other conversations I've had with other folks, but I also feel more free because it's like, okay, I understand not perfectly, but like I can sit to the point of stoicism, right? Like, like even today, you know, for instance, like we can have a conversation and it can, you know, bring up some thought or emotion that like makes me want to fight or argue, but it's like, okay, nothing bad actually happened. Like nothing is wrong. Nobody did anything. And I can't react because there's no point. Right. So I'll sit with it for a sec and then move on. And the conversation continues. So, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people, myself included, stress about things way too much because at the end of the day, almost no decision that they make is going to be life or death, literally. You know, like the stress about work and about all these other things, like at the end of the day, like it, and it doesn't fucking matter. I do part of me when I get out, I just want to move in the middle of nowhere and just you know, disconnect from everything and just kind of reset. I think we're in such a stimulus overloaded uh, scenario with life, with the phones and the internet and all these things that um, everything's a crisis, man. Everything's a crisis, but (laughs) if you can just slow yourself down and be like, you know, I like, this isn't going to literally kill me. This isn't going to be as bad as what I'm making it out to be, because I think, you know, most people will see it's really not going to be that bad. Um, it just takes determination to keep working on it. Like, like you were saying eight months, like, dude, that's a, that's a really long time. Like you were saying 24 seven. And I can only imagine how exhausting that is mentally. Um, but I mean, that's a testament to you. It takes a lot of fucking hard work because our society has been built to make it a lot easier to just go back to being comfortable. Like just, just, you know, go sit in front of your TV and watch Netflix. Here's your phone so you can get on Instagram and, um, you know, don't, don't like, that's uncomfortable. Don't go to therapy or don't work out or do shit because it's uncomfortable. Um, and we've really built a society where it's a lot easier to do nothing than it is to get better. Yeah. Um, and that's, dude, that's what I love about being outside. I spent two weeks 
camping outside of Bend, Oregon with one of my closest friends. And literally it was just, you know, I'd wake up and ride dirt bike around all day and shit, but it was every day I had to go gather wood, enough wood to burn for the entire night. I have to go switch out the water and get clean water. Like I have to do all these things in order to just eat or in order to just to sleep. And I found myself when I'm in these situations, these are now my problems. I have to prepare food. I have to find wood to burn. I have to find a good place to set up a tent. Um, when I'm, my problems are real world, tangible things, like whether it be eating, sleeping, resting, or being safe. And that's all I have to focus on. Life is really fucking good. I am probably never happier than when I'm like off grid and just out in wilderness, because I don't have to worry about, Oh, do I need to post something today? Or do I need to return this email? Or, you know, I just, man, just shut it off. warm find some food. Yeah. And it's, it's fucking great, man. Um, and I, again, it's something you only find outside. So yep. just every, everything is just so tied in and in a mesh with each other. Yeah. I feel that I'm excited. I'm going out this weekend, even though it'll just be for one night. It's, it's still enough to yes. get after it. Yeah. Get a good <laughs> recharge for sure. Awesome, man. Well, I'll leave you alone. Is there anything else you feel like feel like chatting about? You want to get out there? No, man. I, I really appreciate it. This was good to just kind of um, breeze over a lot of different things. It's it's hard to separate because my life I intertwined everything: um, personal life and social media and jobs and all that other stuff. So. It's hard for me to like separate things and only talk about one because they talk, they all interconnect, but um, no, man, I, I appreciate you reaching out and giving me the time to conversate. Yeah, absolutely, man. Ryan, man, once again, I appreciate the living hell out of you. I hope that everybody listening felt like they took something away like I did. I feel like I learned a little bit more as far as maybe handling my own demons, not selling myself short, or finding a community to get involved in. So all of you listening, I will link uh, Ryan's information and the Gorilla Group uh, in the episode description. But beyond that, I hope, hope you all have a great day, and we'll catch you next time.